Hello and welcome to Episode 5 of the Hydrogen Nowcast, recorded on July 9th, 2020. This is a podcast devoted to encouraging the deployment of fuel cell EVs, hydrogen fueling, and hydrogen infrastructure throughout the world. The Hydrogen Nowcast is a production of the Colorado Hydrogen Network in Denver, Colorado. In each podcast, we'll interview the people, organizations, companies, and municipalities that are working to produce or deploy hydrogen technology. We'll discuss their plans and strategies, successes, and lessons learned. Our intent is to encourage and motivate others to take charge, to help deploy hydrogen as a means to decarbonize transportation, and accelerate the movement to stop climate change. I'm Brian DeBruin, the Director of Operations for the Colorado Hydrogen Network. My guest today on the Hydrogen Nowcast is Chris McWinney, the CEO of Millennium Rain Energy in Dayton, Ohio, and that's R-E-I-G-N as in to rule or predominate. Millennium Rain Energy designs and builds small, low-cost hydrogen fuel stations. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you here. So, Chris, why don't we start with you telling the listeners the difference between the type of small, low-cost fueling appliances that you build and the full-scale and therefore high-cost fuel stations built to meet the CSA Group 3 through 18 standards. Uh, CSA Group is one of the largest standards development organizations in North America. Yeah, uh, we have a um, very unique approach to the market. We believe that it is smarter to build stations that would be scalable and be able to dynamically match the supply and the demand. So we have decided also to deliberately make stations that fuel at 5,000 PSI, which is 35 MPA. So in a car like the Toyota Mirai or the Honda Clarity or the Nexo from Hyundai, we have giving the consumer just a little more than a half a fill. So where they would normally go on a 10,000 PSI fill, they would go 320, 350 miles. We would only go 150 to 180 miles, depending on the car and the fill. And um, the reason for that is the cost of the equipment to produce a 10,000 PSI station is on par three times more costly than the 5,000 PSI station. And part of what we believe has to happen in the industry is that the economics have to be paid attention to. And that if you can get the hydrogen fuel cost to be on par with gasoline or cheaper than gasoline, then people are going to have a reason to buy it other than just for the environment. And that's where you're going to snag a bunch of more people than what we all are in it for, which is to help the planet. Just the fact, simple fact of the matter is most people move because of a financial reason. And so, um, that's why we're that's why we headed down that road. Now, it's not to say, and it's important to know that we believe that ultimately you do need to have the 10,000 psi. We're very thankful that the state of California has put up the amount of money that they have to make that happen in California um, because it's it's really caused um, a lot of growth around hydrogen fueling. Um, There are 42 stations, something like that now open. A new one just opened this week. And uh, there's over uh, 7,500 cars on the roads in California. And that would not happen 
and it's a good thing that they went down that road of doing 10,000 PSI. But the reason that they're able to do that is because the state is graciously paying for 80% of it. If you would take that 80% away and say, okay, you put out your station, it's a three to $4 million station, and it's going to fill 100 cars a day because it's a 500 kilogram a day station. Well, that station will never make money because most usually when they put a station out, there aren't enough cars in the general area to get that many cars a day filling up. So that's why we think you should start small and grow large. And at the perfect time, at the right time, then you can put out the 10,000 PSI station, which we also have one of those as well. So that, that's, that's kind of our, our concept and principle uh, of the way we go about doing business. So, Chris, we ought to uh, kind of enlighten the listeners a bit and talk about why it's so difficult to get to that 700 uh, bar station, the 10,000 PSI. Um, you know, it's all because of this so-called Joule-Thompson effect for hydrogen, helium, and neon. Why don't we talk a little bit about what you have to do and the hoops you have to jump through in order to get to that higher pressure? Yeah, so um, what you're referring to is, is that the fueling vessel that you're fueling on the car, uh, the storage vessel, it, it, it heats up and it's made, the liners on the type four tanks are made up of polyethylene and it has a reforming temperature of 185 degrees Fahrenheit or 85 degrees C. So it's in all the codes and standards in J2601 that you can't um, go over a um, four, uh, 185 degrees C when you're doing your um, fill because you run the risk of the tank you losing its uh, ability to hold pressure. And so there are lots of, there's communications with the vehicle to be able to uh, monitor the tank temperature. There's computer programs that are put in to be able to control the flow of the gas, to regulate the, the flow of the gas. The speed of the flow of the gas has a lot to do with how fast it, the tank or how much the tank heats up. And then to allow them to fill, you know, push all that hydrogen gas into the vehicle in five minutes, which is what they target, three to five minutes, they're cooling the gas to minus 40 degrees Celsius. And this takes a rather healthy size chiller to chill that gas to that level. And so, and chillers don't always work all the time. And if the gas is not chilled, then the station gets defaulted into either a very slow fill or no fill at all. And it creates downtime a lot of times in stations. And then the 10,000 PSI itself, just to give you an idea, the stations that are at 6,000 PSI, they can use compression fittings and a compression T will cost maybe 20 bucks. But when you go to uh, over 10,000 PSI, you have to use cone and thread and cone and thread fittings that same T costs 90 bucks. So you can see that just a simple thing as a fitting to direct the gas in tubes is an order of magnitude higher price. And so the tanks all cost more that stores the hot hydrogen in advance of filling the car. And so that's why you have a three times higher cost when you're building a 10,000 PSI station than you do when you're building a 5,000 PSI station. 
Yeah, you know, it's really a shame that hydrogen is one of those three perverse gases that actually heats up when it expands instead of uh, cooling down. And that just, as you say, drives the need to uh, to pre-chill it, and that drives quite a bit of cost into the uh, station. Let's talk a little bit about what I guess I'll call the difference of opinion, maybe we could call it, between um, some people in the hydrogen fueling industry regarding the merits of low-cost fueling appliances and full-blown and therefore expensive fueling stations. And, you know, I'd say that this disagreement really comes down to a trade-off between uh, technical preference and cost preference. Yeah, so the trade-off, which you some might see as a negative for our type of station is, is that um, because we're not pre-chilling the hydrogen, we are uh, slowing our fill-down, and that's how we're controlling the temperature, and we're using a fixed orifice so it's a very, very tiny hole that the hydrogen's allowed to go through. And because that hole is fixed, you can um, guarantee how fast the flow of hydrogen is through that hole. As long as the pressure on the storage is at a certain level, it can only flow through that hole at a certain speed. So that's how we do it. And so we can fuel a half of a tank in eight minutes where they can fuel a full tank in five minutes. So that sounds like a pretty big hit. But eight minutes is typically on par with what regular gas stations fill. And the 150 to 180 miles that we can get in in that range in that car is still better than most vehicles that are battery operated, like the Tesla or uh, other vehicles. The Tesla can actually go a little bit further than that. But still, you can't really charge those vehicles on the high boost charge over and over and over again. That's not recommended. You can only do that ever so often. Um, so so it's still pretty good as uh, compared to batteries. And so that that's really the trade-off, getting less miles per fill and then getting a slower, a little bit slower fill. Well, and again, you know, these... Uh, small fueling stations are really intended for the early days when there's only a few users and possibly for uh, fleet users, people who would be uh, knowledgeable about filling the car and, and maybe get a little bit of instruction on how to do it. And of course, in the long run for the general public, obviously we're going to want the full-blown fuel stations that fuel quickly and can fill a tank completely full. So, but uh, you've already worked with some um, fleet people and so forth, and I, I think you've gotten some pretty good feedback that, um, you know, they like this and the experience is, has been pretty good. Yeah, because the price is so much smaller. I mean, talking $3 million for a station, an average station in California, and our first level station that does four kilograms a day and has eight kilograms of storage, it's all self-packaged all together is only 150,000. So it's a significant difference in it. You know, you can put a lot of stations in the same territory that are small. For instance, we have a presentation where we explain that we could put eight of our stations at a half a million dollars piece that do 64 kilograms a day and could handle 20 cars in the same area as one station that costs $4 million. So, and then we would have eight nozzles filling those cars. And a lot of times what they're running into in California is they only have one nozzle. And so, yeah, you can fill up in five minutes, but you're in line waiting for 30. 
you know, uh, having more stations spread out closer to your home, not as much driving distance. You know, they try to center center those big stations in the middle of a five mile radius. And so the guy on the outside of the radius, if it's in California, he's going to have to drive in LA traffic. It might take him an hour to drive five miles to go get fuel. Um, if you put eight stations in the same area, you have a better broadcast of the availability of fueling and you have the same amount of total volume dispensed, but in eight different dispensers and people have to drive the same amount of time, maybe seven minutes to a station instead of the outside people driving an hour. So um, those are, those are some more comparisons between the two. However, it's important to note that we just want to get started that way. And then you grow, we have four different levels that you can grow stations to from two kilograms a day to 12 kilograms a day, 32 kilograms a day to 64 kilograms a day. And then once you get to 64, you usually don't have enough room to make it all on site anymore. So then you would truck it in from our megawatt scale hydrogen production systems that are on a wind or solar farm and you truck it into those existing stations. So our concept is perfect for what we're trying to do and get stations to grow all the way across the country and not just in California. So Chris, why don't we talk a little bit about the um, certification that your, I'll call them fueling appliances have from, uh, from CSA. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what that means as well as uh, the support that you've gotten from the automakers uh, for this type of a procedure. So uh, we have, we, we actually shut down sales in uh, 2016 for the purpose of developing products that would have certificate of attestation from CSA. And so we looked at, there really wasn't, and there's a code being worked on right now in an SAE, Society of Automotive Engineers, by the committee that will eventually be able to handle our station and we would be able to build our station to that code. There is no code right now to handle an ambient station like ours. So we looked at all the codes and J2601, J2600, NFPA2, the codes for ISO that handle the electrolyzers, the ASME codes, boiler codes, piping codes, pressure vessel codes, all that kind of stuff, electrical codes. And by going through that, together with CSA, developed a document that CSA says that if you build it to this standard, that word, it's not a standard for the whole world. It's it's your internal standard for your factory, that we will attest to the fact that you're building this to this document called an interim requirement. And so that's what we did. And we spent three and a half years and a million and a half dollars. And we ended up with 16 different products that are that carry the CSA certificate of attestation to IR 3-18 for called a scalable hydrogen fueling appliance and to IR 4-14 for electrolyzers, water electrolyzers. So hydrogen generators. And so that has given us now that we can put that mark on every product as a factory meeting, meeting factory standards and uh, CSA where we, we have a license then to put that mark and put it, stamp it right on our product when it goes out the door. When it gets to the location that it's going, you have people called authorities having jurisdiction and those AHJs 
there's 3,800 counties roughly in the United States and every one of them's got an AHJ you've got to go through. And so the majority of them never really have messed with hydrogen at all. And it's very difficult to get permitting when you're going into a new county because you've got to do a very large amount of education. Well, having this interim requirement, you just send it to them, show them that this is actually a fueling appliance. And because it's been regulated as an appliance, it actually, in some cases, doesn't even need a permit. What you need a permit for is your concrete pad, your electrical stub up and your water stub up. And then you bring this thing in, you set it down as an appliance and you're good to go. And it also has shorter setback limits because of the way it's packaged and designed and the safety features that are incorporated into it causes it to drop from a class one division two or class one division one to what's called non-classified. And that's why we're able to get an appliance rating on the product. So a lot of effort, time and money went into studying these regulations. And I'm on CSA and SAE committees. And I also attend NFA, NFPA2 public meetings and are well-versed in how these standards work and how to meet them. So uh, that's been very helpful to us as a company. Okay, great. Well, you know, Chris, we jumped right into talking about the uh, hydrogen fueling appliances and uh, didn't really take time to find out a little bit about you and what your background is and your interest in hydrogen and maybe what, what you're hoping in the future for Millennium Rain Energy. Well, I started out my work in life as a farmer and mechanic, and um, we farmed about 1,800 acres of corn and soybeans and hogs and cattle. And um, then I became a diesel mechanic, Mack truck, and they sent me to transmission and rear end school. And then I left there and I was a mechanic, a fleet mechanic for U-Haul trailers and tore, all, tore them down to their bare bones and framework and rebuilt them new. And then... Um, while I was there, uh, somebody taught me about how to manage money, and I started working with a company that was called A.L. Williams. Later, it became uh, Primerica, which was a member of Citigroup, which was a Dow Jones 30 company, and uh, it was basically the marketing arm for their financial services products, and I became a senior vice president there, spent 23 years there, built a sales force of about 280 people. Uh, that were licensed to sell insurance investments and and uh, loans, taught insurance classes for the state of Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky to get your licenses, your 40-hour course. Had about $28 million of assets under management while I was there and uh, had a large sales force and six offices in three states. And then I found out about hydrogen one day when I was training a guy and um he showed me a little tiny electrolyzer and a Jiffy jar, Jiffy peanut butter jar. And so I started studying it. And when I found out, you know, I was like, what, you know, what good's the hydrogen? He's like, well, the space shuttle runs on it. I'm like, wow. So you can make that kind of energy out of water and electricity. Why aren't we doing that instead of gasoline? And um, so the hydrogen was expensive to make and the, the equipment was expensive to make. It took a lot of electricity and, you know, gasoline back when I first found out about this was still like 75 cents a gallon. 
Well, I never forgot that. And I started in uh, 2003. I started playing around with it and building different types of electrolyzers in my garage with a partner of mine, Dave Herbal. And um, he's just brilliant when it comes to electrochemistry and chemistry and physics. And uh, he was he, he worked with microelectricity, micro, electricity, micro uh, components on electrical components like TVs and VCRs and computers and and uh, that's where most of his training was. So we worked together in my garage for, for quite a number of years. And then we developed some products and started selling them. And one thing led to another. And now we have 16 products that are, have certificates of attestation to meet all the codes and standards to be safely deployed at people's homes or businesses. And we've learned a lot over the years uh, going through that process. But all of my backgrounds, the farming background and the um, financial services background have helped me as a CEO um, be able to build a company and get to the point we're at and still be debt-free other other than what it owes me. I don't really count that because I'm not asking for it and I'm not going to (laughs) foreclose. All right, great. Um, So what do you see on the horizon, maybe short-term or long-term for Millennium Rain Energy, where, where do you want to take it? Well, we have six markets that we believe that this products that we've built will go into without having to change them any. And But to just isolate that to one to give you an idea of the potential that we see, um, we believe that in 20 years, we can build 30,000 stations in the United States. That would be approximately 18% of the current market. And we believe that from that, we will generate uh, about $6 billion a year in profits from the sales of hydrogen. If we can average uh, $2 a kilogram profit margin on the uh, gas sales. So, you know, we're starting out, we're, we're, we're trying to get our company to where we can generate 20 units a year uh, that we do without relying on any of our outside vendors, which we have currently, we have 103 vendors, to build, you know, have all the components or to build some of the components that we've designed and, and, and need to have built and for us to assemble. So, you know, there's a, a big part of those we're going to move in-house and we'll still have our outside vendors, but then we'll also be able to do 200 a year by ourselves. And that uh, we'll grow that over time. And we want to have, we're going to put 27 stations across the United States in the next couple of years uh, from Los Angeles to New York. And we're going to call it the transcontinental hydrogen highway. And then we're going to take that, those, those cities that we place those in and spread out from the North to the North and to the South from those locations, kind of ribs on a spine um, if you will, um, and, and build out the hydrogen fueling network. That'll generate $30 billion in sales of equipment. And um, like I said, $6 billion annually in recurring revenue stream on the, on the hydrogen gas sales. That's great. I was excited to hear about that because this transcontinental hydrogen highway is going to go along I-70 mostly. And of course, Denver is on I-70. And so looking forward to... Uh, seeing some of your fueling stations here. And I, I guarantee I'll be the first one lined up to uh, buy or lease a, a fuel cell vehicle. So I think we'll have at least three stations that run through uh, Colorado. We might have to have four to get over the mountains. So, um, but uh, 
Anyways, yeah, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to coming through there. And there's an opportunity for people now to uh, get the cars. And um, we're going to have a race, you know, like not a race, but um, kind of a cannonball run, if you will, maybe from L.A. to New York and New York to L.A. and meet in the middle someplace like the uh, Promontory Point did in Utah where the trains came together from the west and the east. Um, we're going to do something like that. So it'll be a big media thing and showcase the fuel cell cars and, and that you can actually go from coast to coast. So that's going to be exciting. Yeah, for certain. I'll take part in that if I can. And um, of course, Colorado Hydrogen Network is absolutely behind you. And um, hopefully we can help in some way if we're successful getting some uh, hydrogen fueling stations in Denver. Maybe that will uh, free up some of your funds for other places. So. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, looking forward to that. So um, maybe one of the last things we could talk about is that um, transportation, I don't think, is the only focus of Millennium Rain Energy, but I think you're also looking at uh, utility-scale hydrogen, uh, both storage and production. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so this is going to be the holy grail for storage of electrons from renewable energy sources whether that be from overproduction of geothermal or um, hydroelectric or from wind or from solar, whenever you have the ability to produce electrons, but you can't use them, then you need to store them for later. And to do this in batteries, according to um, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, Colorado, did a paper that says that in the 100 megawatt scale class, you're looking at about $385 per kilowatt hour uh, for storage in lithium ion batteries. With our super tanker, we can do that for around $95 a kilowatt. So, um, but we're not saying that you don't need batteries. On large scale, you, if you get over four to five megawatts of energy and you're storing that in batteries, once you have the capability of doing that and having that storage capacity in batteries and then also the output capacity from those batteries to invert that from DC back to AC and get it back on the grid, after you get to that point is when it becomes more cost effective to start doing hydrogen. And you need the batteries up front. You'll never be able to get away from that because of their ability to regulate the grid. Um, so that is a really important thing to um, regulate the grid properly. And so batteries do that very well. But after that, hydrogen and then putting it back on through a fuel cell is by far and away the least cost effect, you know, the most cost effective. And it actually, the bigger it gets, the cheaper it gets, because all you're doing is adding a tank that you just fill with hydrogen and the hydrogen production system's already there. And you just add more tanks. Then the tank only costs maybe $200,000 where a megawatt battery costs 750,000 to a million dollars. So that's why there's such a competitive difference in cost per kilowatt hour. So we are building megawatt scale electrolyzers and we're building megawatt scale storage. And we believe that we already have several projects that are in the process of being developed in the early stages. And what that basically means, people are trying to find their money. And so, uh, but once that's done, we're ready to go and put out our first one megawatt 
class system, and then we'll be able to scale it from there in megawatt uh, increments. Okay, great. Well, Chris, this has really been an interesting discussion, and we thank you for your time and being with us today. Um, do you have any parting thoughts, and maybe also tell listeners where they can learn more about Millennium Rain Energy? Well, our website is mreh2.com. That's Millennium Rain Energy H2 for hydrogen.com. MREH2.com. And um, you can go there, and I've got some interesting uh, on one of the pages, Understanding H2 is a tab that you can click on. There's a PDF in there on how to build a microgrid using hydrogen. Very interesting. Um, and you can see all of our different products and the spec sheets on the products are on there, PDFs with spec sheets. And you can see uh, some videos. Um, I've been on a show called Think Tech several times with Stan the Energy Man in Hawaii. And uh, so and we just have two news articles recently that have come out. You can see one of the latest ones that was in Energy Tech magazine just this week. So um, I, I highly recommend you go to our website and check it out. Okay, great. Well, I'll, I'll also put a link to Millennium Brain Energy on the Colorado Hydrogen Network uh, website, which is colorado-hydrogen.org. So again, Chris, thanks for being here today. And uh, listeners, if you enjoy listening to the Hydrogen Nowcast, please give, give us a rating in your podcast app because a good rating helps us be discovered by other people. And of course, also word of mouth recommendations are really important. So consider letting people in your own network know about the Hydrogen Nowcast. So until next time, this is Brian DeBruin wishing you health and prosperity. Goodbye. <music>